everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 306, The Robots Are Taking Over, recorded October 15th, 2017, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementopie.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Drive Time Radio for Geeks. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, joining me, wait, um, yeah, Soapbox Cockerel, and joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth, the gooey kid Anderson, and Miles, the Aussie engineer. Wakeham. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome back, faithful opiates. Glad you could join us. And the drive time hits a stumbling roadblock there on the intro, <laughs> yeah. but we're, we're moving ahead. 80 mile an hour. Crushing rookie mistake. I put a mint in my mouth just before I started. I don't know why I did that. No idea what I was thinking, but I had to stop there twice and, and like shift it from one side of my mouth to the other, and, and it <laughs> broke up my whole pattern. I just I couldn't do it. Never do that. Now you're gonna you're gonna listen. Be listening to me go as I suck this thing. So, um, it's bad radio, rookie move, bad host, no cooking. So, what is the Patreon level we need to get at to (laughs) to keep that from happening? That's a good idea. You know, once we reach ten dollars a month, only two of us will you know be sucking mints. Once we reach. (laughs) twenty dollars a month only one of us and what you know something like that so i'm actually going to record myself smacking on that mint and and insert it in a loop every 18 seconds until we reach a certain level on patreon how about that (laughs) we've resulted to blackmailing that's that's what it is right now we've gone some some, from begging to blackmailing welcome to listener supported content Oh, it could be one of those call-in shows where, you know, everyone's calling in to give donations all the time. Oh, man. I, uh, I wouldn't those. listen to that. I wouldn't want to put it on if I wouldn't listen to it. <laughs> Fun times. So, an interesting thing happened to me this week. Um, there's a bit of a backstory here, but I've got the mic and you can't do anything about it. So, uh, here we go. Uh, <laughs> a friend of mine works for uh, a... Uh, an architect firm, construction company, sort of a, you know, general purpose, tear stuff down, build stuff up company. And uh, they were remodeling uh, an old police station, demolishing it and putting up a Chase Bank. Um, and so during the pre-conference or, or pre-demolition call, they were talking about tearing down the old building. And he threw out a line, something like, hey, if there's any vending machines, I'd like to have them. Because who wouldn't like to have a vending machine, honestly? And right. that was kind of all there was to it. So then the call after demolition, at the end of it, somebody said, hey, man, your, uh, your two vending machines are out by the fence. Um, you need to come pick them up. <laughs> and he was like, uh, oh, they were vending machines? Um, and so it's, this literally constructed, it's just dirt. It has been completely raised. There are not, there's not one stone upon another with two vending machines sitting out there. So he saw me at church Wednesday night and said, hey, man, I need your truck. Um, and if you want, you can have a vending machine out of it. Um, so we headed over there Saturday morning expecting it, it was a, like a candy machine and a Coke machine, an actual Coke, and not just Texas in the way that every carbonated beverage is a Coke, but an actual Coca-Cola machine. And uh, I said, sure, that sounds like fun. Uh, no. And so we thought, we'll just load them both up. It's just a half hour away. No big deal. We get there. These things are massive. I mean, I... We all know what vending machines look like, but until you've tried to move one, you don't quite understand how big and heavy these things are. 
So we pushed the Coke machine into the back of my truck and it filled the back of my truck. There was no more room for the other one. So we ended up having right. to drive to his place, drop it off, and then go back. And I was like, you know, f- this is so not worth it. I didn't really even want the, the machine. It was just kind of a neat thing. Um, you know, we, we just forget it. I don't want it. And he was like, no, you don't understand. I have to remove these now. I'm committed to removing these. I said that I would. There, there's a whole construction thing that's going to happen here. Can't happen without these machines. So so now it's like, oh, this carrot just became a stick. Fine. So we went back. This candy machine, it's one of those spiral vending machines that uh, has, I think, five or six rows. Um, and it weighs roughly a metric ton. Um, and there were two of us working at it. Um, eventually, we ended up having to use, like, the ratchet straps. Oh, as I bump my mic. The ratchet straps is, like, leverage we would push it up an inch and then ratchet the thing in and then rest and then push it up another inch and then ratchet it in to hold it and then rest. And finally got it on, got it back out to my house. And I thought this will be, this is going to be awesome in the man cave. And it's, it's full of four year old candy. It's gross. It's disgusting. Um, and I spent an hour and a half drilling the lock out so that I could buy a new lock and replace it. Broke 10 drill bits. These things it's like a four and a half inch slug of the hardest steel I've ever been through. Your your candy, if you own a vending machine, your candy, your money is safe in that vending machine. It's unbelievable how hard this thing was. Now, admittedly, they were cheap Black & Decker $20 set drill bits. They were nothing fancy. But I, I literally broke and or dulled 10 different drill bits before I got, finally got this thing out. Opened it all up and called some guys over. There were four of us there. And we were going to take it down to the man cave. And somebody thought, hey, did we, have we measured the door? Uh, well, no, we haven't done that. Let's check that. Yeah, it won't go in my house. <laughs> There's not a door in my house. This vending machine will go in. So now it's sitting in my garage and my truck is sitting outside because <laughs> I can't get my truck in the garage with this massive vending machine in there. Okay, so now for the important question, how much change was in the vending machine? About $34. Wow. Yeah. So enough to pay for the gas, yeah. right? So this one takes dollar bills. So there was about $12 in dollars uh, bills and then about 22 or so in change. Uh, so um, now I have this thing and I have this, I plugged it into the cord had been just ripped out of it. So I put a new electric cord, cord on it, plugged it on. A couple of lights blink, but it doesn't do anything else. So now I have this thing. What am I going to do? Am I going to fix it? Am I going to try to Craigslist it, list it? Am I going to rip all the stuff out and put some wire grates in and make a smoker out of it? <laughs> what are my <laughs> options for this thing? Um, it was sort of you an unexpected to, project that I wasn't planning on having. You have to fix it. You know, find out what what the blinking lights mean, and then you know the the relay that y'all knocked loose, ratcheting it up into your truck, and just re reset that, and then you'll have a functioning vending machine in my That'd garage. Be great for like and my truck will be in the driveway. Yeah, yeah. You know, we'll put it outside. You use a dolly and put it outside, and for trick or treat, you know, the kids can punch a vending machine thing. That would be, you would have the most popular house around. Yeah, I don't think you're understanding. A dolly is not a thing. A pallet jack, maybe. This is not. This is not something a, a single human can move without mechanical assistance. Okay, fine. You convert the garage into sort of like just a little <laughs> a, El Cheapo haunted house that they go through to get to the vending machine that they press and get candy. It can be yeah. a quest, and kids will love it. You will be the coolest house ever. 
And then next year, ever you can sell it to somebody else. And that's how you get rid of it. You're creating demand. Yeah, but I don't want to park my truck outside for a year. So that, that's the thing. I, I kind of, I want to, I, I told myself, if it works, I'm going to find a way to keep it. Uh, maybe I'll, you know, find us a, a, a place somewhere that needs a vending machine and say, I'll give you 30% of the profits if you'll let me take up an outlet for you, you know, and, and make it a, a side business. Um, I looked it up. It's the Automatic Products 7600 system, which apparently was made from like 1950 to 1990, the same model. They're still in, in production, uh, or not in production, but they're still in circulation. You can still buy them used and refurbished. They're still kind of the standard uh, thing. So I would have no trouble getting parts for it uh, and getting it working. And, I, and you know, I could probably disassemble it to the to a point enough to get it in my man cave. I could probably figure that out. But then it's like this project I didn't want. And now I'm looking at this thing that's going to take weeks to months to do. And while I'm intrigued to do it, I, I don't want to walk out in the rain to my car every time uh, I need to go outside to do it. So I put it to you, the listeners, and you, the host. What should I do with this candy machine? Okay, you fix it and you put it inside the church and use it to raise money for like the youth or some, you know, project. Because well, then people will buy It'll, it'll sell out every Sunday. Yeah, that was what my friend had decided to do with his soda machine, which also is too big to fit through his doors, uh, is he's going to take it up to the church. He's going to clean it up, take it up to the church, and just say, this is yours. Do what you want with it. And I might do that with mine, um, but I don't know. It was just this opportunity that landed in my lap. What guy doesn't want a vending machine? And you know, and vending machines come in all shapes and sizes. I was p- picturing something, you know, three feet tall, three feet wide, you know, a, a gum type machine. No, no, this is one of those giant six and a half feet tall, four feet wide um, machines that that you see everywhere. In fact, if you if you Google automatic products seventy uh, seven thousand series, you look at that and go, oh yeah, I've seen that one a hundred thousand times. I know that one. What you didn't know is they weigh eight hundred pounds, and I've I think I've decided the reason they weigh that much. It's so you can't move them. I think they're heavy just to be heavy because there's no structural reason for it to be this heavy. It could be a much lighter machine, but I think they made them heavy just to be heavy. All right. So just list it in the vendors or business opportunity section of Craigslist. Right. There's all kinds of things that I have considered doing with it. Um, I just, my, my instinct says fix it up and either keep it in your house or put it to use. Uh, But I want to fix it. But at the same time, I know nothing about it. And, you know, it's it's one of those things that could linger on for a year and a half as I figure it out and, and tinker with it. And, you know, if it was downstairs in my basement, that would be fine. I could leave it there. It'd be out of the way. But, you know, anyway, it's a thing. You know, you know what I'm thinking here? Um, we've got coin-operated laundry, laundry machines in some of our rental properties. And they're an interesting breed, an interesting animal. Because on the one hand, I love passive income. I love the whole idea of having a machine, a robot, you know, make money. <laughs> um, you feed it power and water and gas and it does people's laundry and once in a while you open it up and voila, there's a whole bundle of coins there. Well, it's great except there's this problem that wherever you put it, it brings in this kind of criminal element who want to break it right and, and get it to the coins and they don't realize the thing doesn't hold much more than maybe a hundred bucks i mean they're not that full of coins you know but to some tweaker or some junkie out there it's gold and they want the coin box and though i've had people come in with with 
you might, you've seen the damage they've done to these machines trying to open them up for 50 bucks worth of coins. It's ridiculous. But the one thing about it is once you get past the risks of having something like that and knowing it's going to get destroyed by somebody sometime, even though, as you rightly said, it took you six drill bits and an hour and a half of time to get into it, that's not going to tell some junkie that, you know, they, they're going to encounter the same thing. They're, they're living in some fictional idea that they can walk up there and magically press a button and the thing will pop out money and off they go to their tweak, you know, their dealer. No, that's, that's, that's how they are. But at the end of the day, when that doesn't happen, which let's hope it is 99.5% of the time, you're going to make some profit. And the fact that you've got this machine and you feed it wholesale candy and people come and they use it and you get money back that's more than it costs you to put the candy in and, you know, less the split to whoever you put it in. That's an amazing little demonstration of how capitalism is supposed to work at its simplest level. And if I were in your shoes, I'd be getting your kids involved in this and I'd be saying, this is how it's supposed to work. <laughs> this is how the, the free market is supposed to work. And let's work, let's create a little family business called, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the family vending machine co. And we'll all go and do this because what's going to happen is every couple of weeks, we're going to have to restock it. And so maybe this is a, you know, a, a little, not a, to use the word job, but maybe we're all shareholders in this, we're all partners in this, and we're going to go in there and we're going to watch this machine generate money. And they're going to learn a lesson of how capitalism works. I mean, that, you know, take it from me, I'm, you know, the Mr. Free Market, you know, capitalist here, that's how I would look at it. But I don't know, your mileage may vary. Yeah, my oldest and youngest, they they all have plans for this. They're like, you can put this thing here, and then we can go to Sam's, and we can buy money, uh, buy things, and get it. And and yeah, I don't want to squelch that, but I also understand that this is not as easy as just setting something out there and and magically it makes money. Uh, maybe they're no, overly optimistic, what, and I'm overly pessimistic. What a wonderful lesson to learn in their teenage years, or even their pre-teenage years to see how this whole thing comes together. And it's so simple. They'll carry that lesson forevermore. I, that's what I would be doing. Yeah. And my wife had grand ideas. Like we can paint it black and put like a, a fathead stencil of Darth Vader on it and it look really cool. <laughs> and you went, yeah, I'm all for it, but it's four inches too big to fit through my door. <laughs> I've actually talked to a local handyman, a friend of mine. How hard is it to remove? Cause it's a sliding glass door. How hard is it to remove both panes of that glass? Oh, that's not hard. Well, uh, talk to me in money. Is it is it hundred dollars not that hard, or thousand dollars not that hard? Uh, I, I don't know how much money I want to sink into this free thing. It's free like a puppy, you know. You get you get yeah. a free puppy, and you spend the rest of your life paying for it. All right, I didn't right. mean to spend fifteen minutes on that, but uh, it's just a it just happened. I mean, just today I was working. I managed to to get it sort of working. I mean, like, like I said, lights come on, it buzzes a little bit but it doesn't do anything else. It's got to be something super simple, like a breaker that's tripped or, or, you know, a fuse or something like that. Like you said, something that in move in shipping got moved around, but I just can't find enough technical. And it's either too technical. Like I can find the actual wiring schematic that shows that this resistor goes to this diode, or I can find a very cursory, um, put money in here. Candy out comes in. It comes out here. I can't find anything in between at least in the hour or so I've spent searching for it. And the people with the information, rightly so, guard that information because that's a business for them. 
there, I mean, there is a good business to be had repairing these things. And so uh, I found a couple of places that repair vending machines, but they won't even, they're not interested in talking at all. It's like, you know, service fee, I'll come out and look at it, but I'm not interested in sharing my knowledge. Have you contacted the company yet to see if there are schematics or something they give or will provide? Well, the no, I haven't. I mean, I just got it yesterday. It was over the weekend. But uh, the actual company that made the the sold, the, not the manufacturer, but the reseller, went out of business in like 1993. Uh, huh. This thing is old. Um, I I suspect, and I'm basing it sure, uh, strictly off the serial number. I think it was manufactured in '82. Um, cool. And it's still in. It still seems to be in relatively working condition. But, you know, when this police precinct closed, they just shut the doors and walked away. It still had nutter butters and stuff in it. So I, my assumption is it was working at the time it was pulled out of service. Based on the fact that, I mean, if it was broken, they would have at least emptied the money box. Right. Anyway, you talk now, Seth. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, let's talk well, first about say, the foreigner. Let's talk about Yeah, that. I... I really enjoyed the movie. It is um it stars Jackie Chan and Pierce Brosnan and it it's recently out in theaters. And it was I mean it was pretty enjoyable. There's not like a t- it's not like a a Jackie Chan Hong Kong movie, although there is some of that action in it. It was I mean fairly predictable. You know, the story is I mean this is really in a spoiler, but his daughter dies in a bombing um and so he's like he has nothing left so he at least wants justice and he's pursuing that throughout the movie and i thought it was it was really it was an enjoyable movie it wasn't action heavy it was more story heavy um uh, the the plot twists and stuff if you want to call them that they really weren't too major but it was interesting you know seeing him kind of play an older grieving dad instead of like a super cop or something like that and pierce brosnan you know chewing it up has an has an irish ex ira kind of guy and it's just an enjoyable movie so i am i'm glad i saw it uh in the theater it was well worth my well, I don't know that anything's worth the amount of money it costs to see a movie <laughs> these days, but it was enjoyable. I watched uh, The Accountant uh, uh, Netflix DVD this week. Um, right. Uh, ben Affleck in his post-Batman bulk up uh, playing an autistic uh, mob accountant. And if you're if you're an accountant for the mob, you you have to be tough, too. And it's, it was an interesting look at autism. It was an interesting take on the whole, you know, guy who's good at numbers but can also can also shoot. Um, there were lots of things interesting about it, but I'm not sure it was actually enjoyable. I mean, all the way through, I, it had my attention, and and dis, despite you know 1990 whatever is Daredevil, I'm actually a big fan of Ben Affleck. I think he's a solid actor, and he did a good job with this. And and the subject matter of autism and the autistic spectrum. Um, was treated well the plot twists were fairly predictable you know they were there were like three moments that were supposed to be (gasps) moments and for me they were "Hmm," moments you know um and i get it so i'm not saying i'm recommending it but it wasn't a terrible experience (laughs) there you go yeah i it was that was a movie i enjoyed watching um 
different kind of movie from the foreigner though but yeah so i like jackie chan i like everything he does but he's getting awfully old because he could he still do the 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 choreography in this one like i say there wasn't as much but there were a couple of scenes like um it's you know i mean of course i wasn't super watching and they didn't do the you know the reel at the end showing all the stuff but you know jumping through holes in roofs uh swinging down poles and stuff so did he fight with a ladder like he, could, he likes ladders uh i think there was i don't remember if there was a ladder involved but there were at least steps so um it, but yeah so you know maybe it wasn't the whole movie because i don't know if he could handle the whole movie anymore but there was really there was like one scene where it was like okay that's got to be in every jackie chan movie ever and then there was another scene where it was just uh out in the woods fighting and it was and that was pretty good and there was just a little bit of other stuff here and there but you know two um camera shots i guess or two scenes that you know are kind of typical jackie chan fare and it it he still holds up well what i was thinking you know golly i don't think a 60 year old man could do it but i was like but i bet that's not a stunt man i bet he's actually doing that so um is he 60 years old now he's got to be close to that oh my god i'm feeling old according to anonymous strangers on the internet he's 63 oh man that's sad. Yeah, to be able to do recently? what he does. Yeah. Um, same age as Jerry Seinfeld. Just ironically. I oh, watched wow. his Netflix uh, comedy special, Jerry Before Seinfeld, and he mentioned he was 63 in that. Yeah. Anyway. Well, the wife was out of town. I so would I watch Jackie Chan in a fish fight. <laughs> That's true. Interestingly, Janet, Jackie Chan doesn't actually know how to fight. Um, he, I, I saw an interview with him early on in his career. He was a circus performer and, and in Chinese, uh, circus traditional theater, mock fighting is a common element. So he learned all the moves of a fighter, but he was never actually trained as a fighter. He, it's essentially, it's dancing for him. Huh. I don't know if that means he could actually throw a punch or not, but he looks like he can. So, yeah, he, he could probably beat me up. So. And uh, well, yeah, okay. Uh, even at sixty-three, uh, getting getting the best on a tub like either you or me wouldn't be that difficult. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe if I could catch him and sit on him, I, I I would have a shot. But otherwise, I ain't gonna upset him. Uh, and then Seth, I have to call clickbait on this one. But uh, go ahead, tell your story. Okay, this is um uh, this is like from al dot com. So I guess it's Alabama. Just um. You know, showing how Mississippi is. It, it's the uh, totalitarian left social justice warrior stuff run amok. There's a school district in Minnesota that is uh, pulling to kill a mockingbird from its reading list because it makes people uncomfortable. They're not pulling it from the library yet, but they're they're taking it off the reading list because it could possibly make people uncomfortable. And I'm like thinking, dude, if there's ever a book that kind of needs to be read today, this is a good one that that would do it. But instead, because people might feel uncomfortable, you know, I, I don't know. We'll just have them read Jack and Jill again or something. I don't know. I just thought I, I didn't even think we would talk about this one. So mm. I really wasn't. Um, 
<laughs> going to talk about well, it much. But yeah. Seth, Seth's so, title in the show notes was "Next Step: Actually Banning Books." Um, well, okay, <laughs> pulling it off the the reading list is not such a bad thing. Um, and you know, honestly, um, this book is supposed to be offensive. That that's the sort of the, it's an offensive thing that they're talking about uh, racism uh, essentially. Uh, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning book that doesn't necessarily make it good. Mean it's good. It means that a lot of critics liked it. Uh, I personally have never read it. Have you? Yeah, we went. It, I don't remember what grade in high school, but we read it um, in the English class. I mean, I I don't remember a ton of stuff about it, but I thought it was a pretty. I good do book. worry about the the. Uh, everybody has to to feel good all the time mentality in our culture that bothers me um and as long as it's still in their libraries or still available i'm not going to get too upset about it but yeah maybe that is the next step maybe they have gone one step toward that slippery slope what do you think miles there's a no i mean art look how many how many naked pieces of art paintings are sitting in the louvre right now i mean there's tons of them and they offend people because they were supposed to that was the whole point art is supposed to shake you up a little bit and make you think and take you out of your comfort zone it's what art is so if you treat it as a book as a as a piece of literature as an artistic statement i don't see why you would want to ban it um that's just me if you treat it as the content is upsetting people because it's hate speech or it's it's whatever, well, yeah, I guess you can have that discussion. But I don't think this book falls into that category, does it? Don't know. It, it is a book about kind of racial injustice in um, the segregated South. So it's really it's still you know you say okay if segregation is not official today but it is still something that is very much um even though the book is what 50 years old or something now it is still a topic that is hot and heavy in american culture today so i don't see i don't see how reading this could be a bad thing for anybody right yeah, uh, but, I'm with you on that. You know, these are people who are taking down Confederate war memorials because they're offensive. It's that whole sense of if anything could offend anybody, it can't happen. Um, yeah, and, you know, banning actual historic flags because, because you know, I, I get offended by it. And, I mean, you know, and it's, it's not – just come on, people. Grow up. And – yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you look at what Germany did post-Nazi era. I mean, they banned everything that had to do with that whole period of time. It was like they wanted just to black it out. Um, and even to this day, it's heavily policed. You can't do certain things in the street that might even bring back memories of, of those times without creating, you know, an offense that could jail you. Um, I, you know, that I don't know. I, I don't think that you can block off history it's what happened it might not be something we we like but we have to accept that it happened and ideally we have to learn from it so it doesn't happen again but to try and pretend it didn't happen kind of defeats the purpose to me you'll never learn from history if you don't even acknowledge that history happened preaching to the choir yeah 
I, you know, in the case of Germany, they're, they were so embarrassed on such a grand global scale. I, I sort of understand their reaction, but yeah, your point is, how do you learn? How do you learn from the, the lessons if the history is erased? Right. Uh, anyway. Um, we, we have to give passing mention. I, I get feedback from time to time. I'm sick of hearing about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a thing. It's going to continue to be a thing. And this week, it was a $5,800 thing. Yeah, I went up a thousand dollars in one week, and but you know, okay, so um, there are people who speculate in Bitcoin and they buy and hold them, and there's people who use Bitcoin and they want to transact with them and they want the network effect or what it does, and I think that both groups right now are cheering for the win here because on the the speculators are making a buttload of money on this stuff right now. And the people who want to actually see Bitcoin become useful as a trading uh, currency or as a trading tool, um, you know, the Lightning Network is, is coming online gradually. And what we're going to see is we're going to see eventually, you know, instantaneous transactions or close to that. Um, and it's it, here's the thing that really amazed me about this price jump. It was It's always been sort of like when you just sit below the 5,000 mark, there was always this sort of reticence that people it could not get the Bitcoin price over the over the line. You know, it was sitting there at four thousand and something for three months or whatever it felt like three months, and it would not get over the line. And the second it hit five thousand, it just went to the moon because people no longer felt like they had to hold back. It was almost like they had a a snipe bid to buy it if it went over five thousand or something, and boom, off it went. Um, but meanwhile, this has been the big week of hearing over and over again, particularly from Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan, how Bitcoin's a fraud, Bitcoin's dead. If you trade in Bitcoin, you're a criminal. I'll fire anybody in my company who trades in Bitcoin, yada, yada, yada. And meanwhile, pating off it goes to the moon. I think this is a sign that the old dinosaur and prehistoric ways of banking uh, will eventually see the end of their day. So, hey, technology, crypto for the win. You know, I predicted this a few months ago that there would be that psychological threshold of 5,000 and then it'll rocket past that. It'll happen again about 10,000 and it'll, it'll happen again. Um, we, we humans put artificial emphasis on certain numbers and 5,000 was that magic number. And now that we're at 5,000, six, seven, and eight will come quickly. Uh, that's my prediction. I think so too. I I don't know. Yeah, I wonder just how high it can go. I noticed um, during the big jump, you know, my miner went from five something a day or every other day to like six something every other day. And then what will happen next is there will then be a big jump in the difficulty of the hash that will then reduce the amount I'm making. So I'll still, it'll reduce how much my miner can mine, but it'll fall back to about the price that it was. So, you know, it's been holding pretty steady, um, in the amount of money it's been making since I've put it in. There's, there's a blip when you get a huge price run up, but then it, it comes back down. And so as the mining gets more and more difficult, obviously I'm not, mining as much but it is the value increase is offsetting the difficulty increase and so i'm still 
it's still producing, you know, roughly, I mean, that's not exact, but it's still producing roughly the same amount of fiat currency, uh, even though it's producing less and less Bitcoin, you know, every week or so whenever they refresh the hash rate. I love that phrases like fiat currency are are common knowledge these days. The, you know, 20 years ago, only economists knew what a fiat con- currency was. Yeah, I thought it was a car. <laughs> hey, we are economists, just in the new economy. That's right. So, and then very quickly, Miles, just because I'm interested, um, Australian bandwidth is super expensive. Is that what this means? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I was looking at uh, cost of bandwidth for a project we're doing with our data centers, and I, f- I stumbled upon an, an article from the company Cloudflare, which we probably all use or encounter Cloudflare on a daily basis. They use uh, their technology to protect a lot of websites from DDoS attacks, uh, particularly uh, sites that are more sensitive to that sort of thing. So you might find yourself sitting on one of their kind of landing pages before you get forwarded to a site that you want to go to. Well, this company in 2015 did a study of bandwidth. I guess bandwidth's obviously a big thing with these guys because they're uh, protecting uh, these clients from DDoS attacks uh, and it's their bandwidth which is doing it. So they were looking at everywhere in the world where bandwidth was being sold and what you know what is the actual price of bandwidth on a sort of a per byte or a per megabyte kind of basis. Um, and the interesting thing is that the number one cheapest cost of bandwidth in the world, and this is from 2015 numbers, but I don't think they're going to be all that different to today, uh, is Europe. Europe has the cheapest bandwidth in the world by far and literally at twice the price of bandwidth is the United States coming in at number two. Um, we we've pay a lot of money for bandwidth here uh, compared to if you were living in the Netherlands or something. It's, it's way more expensive here. Um, number three was Asia, uh, which came in at, at quite a steep increase in price uh, bandwidth there, there's just not that many ISPs. There's not that many providers. Uh, and so the cost of bandwidth is enormous in Asia. And then, uh, unfortunately, my hometown was basically almost all the way to the very, very end last was Australia uh, because uh, they just can't seem to get bandwidth right down there. So uh, it, it stuck out to me that this was going to be a factor because I, I'm going to Australia in a couple of weeks um, and I was just thinking, I'll, you know, I'll be doing the, trying to do the podcast from down there and I wonder how that's going to go. Oh, man, <laughs> I'm not thinking it's going to go that well now. I look at this, these bandwidth numbers. Well, yeah, and, you know, I mean, I'm no, I'm no evangelist for the American ISP cartels that dominate um, the industry around here, but. In a country like the Netherlands, which is one of the most densely packed countries uh, in the world, I mean, bandwidth is going to be super, the installation cost is going to be so much cheaper because you go 10 feet and you've connected half a million people. Whereas, you know, you come to uh, places like America, especially when you get out in sparse populations, you know, you got to go miles to connect anybody. And so it's, and then Australia, I mean, granted, you know, places like Sydney, they're pretty packed, but you get out there in the outback and that's really going to drive up the per capita cost. So again, I mean, 
I, I, I have several news stories that we're probably not going to get to today just because. Um, but, you know, the I, the American ISPs are doing everything they can to just, you know, take money hand over fist from everybody. But, you know, just in terms of cost, there are some costs in a less densely packed area that more densely packed areas, uh, you know, that cost is going to be a lot lower. So try to bring just a tiny bit of balance. There, there seems to be a correlation between infrastructure investment and cost here in that Europe has invested very, very heavily in infrastructure uh, for, for internet. And as you rightly say, I mean, it's much more expensive to run extremely long cables uh, you know, from one side of a very large country to the other. So, you know, I, I understand that. But if we are not continuously investing in inf- infrastructure improvement, it's a very interesting demonstration of how you can fall behind uh, very quickly. So maybe, maybe we can see some infrastructure investment coming through in the future. Who knows? Well, you know, a lot of it depends on where that money's coming from. In Europe, much of that is government subsidized, so it's the people's money um uh, paying for it in the u.s it's the cartel and the only reason they do it is because if the cartel was set up so that they could make it um profitable uh i'm guessing based on just the the just the factors of the way things are not knowing anything about the australian political system i'm guessing it's almost all independent contractors because at this point none of them it's not worth their effort to do it does 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 my guess hold true uh, no, not really. Uh, there's a long history in terms of infrastructure. Originally, Australia's telecommunications was public-owned uh, state um, agency called uh, Telecom, and they, res- they were responsible for running copper wire underneath the, the, the city of every city and then interconnecting those into big transformer-based exchanges that we used to have one at the end of the street when I lived there. Um, and they eventually got privatized uh, into what they now call Telstra. And the deal was that uh, Telstra, as a private company, was still the, quote, owners of the copper underground, and that they would uh, lease out use of it to other private companies to enable competition. Um, Kind of worked, kind of didn't. Uh, In the end, Telstra was still the most dominant provider, but again, did not invest in their own infrastructure and eventually the government stepped in a few years ago with a thing they called the national broadband network or the nbn which uh, was a disaster because it was a highly politicized thing that was only supposed to cost a small amount of money and ended up costing you know 75 billion dollars and it was supposed to replace all that cable with fiber and they did but not necessarily everywhere and it's been years and years and years of just constant frustration for people to try to get connected to that fiber and consequently it's a perfect example of governments should not be involved in what could be better done by the private sector um, even though they might want to control the pipes Uh, in a country as big as australia you can't do that you probably can in sweden you probably can in the netherlands you probably can in in france and 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 portugal Uh, and that's probably why they get a much better result but can't do that in Australia and certainly can't do that if the government's in charge. Yep. Governments, by and large, don't make decisions that are good for their subjects. 
No, no, you know, <laughs> it's just I wish the way that it is. Pe- a lot of people who live in what we would call socialist countries, and Australia is is like that. Um, it sounds really, really good when you don't live there. How you can present it like, oh, everybody gets free education, everybody gets free healthcare, every you know, no, they don't. <laughs> They get a low-grade rationed version of the the lowest common denominator solution everybody gets, whether you like it or you don't. And it it's it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. And it's only when the private system comes in to provide different levels of service, if you're willing to invest more money in something, you can get a better quality of service. Then you start getting at least something that's halfway reasonable. But even if you don't want what the government's offering, you're still paying for it. It's in your taxes and so on. So bandwidth and internet connections is just one example of how you know it doesn't work, how dysfunctional it doesn't work. Um, the medical system it's okay, you're not going to die if you have a car accident, but you're going to get kicked out of that hospital bed way ahead of time because the next guy needs it and we've got to ration out service. There's no such thing as, as getting uh, a true private cover there that actually will give you benefits. And I'll probably get a lot of flack, but I've lived on in all di- different environments of how this is implemented and that socialism system, it sounds real good. But it ain't, (laughs) at least not in that implementation. All right. I don't don't want to go too far down that road. That could be a whole uh, show in itself, has been a whole show in itself. Yeah. Uh, But I want to move on a little bit to to some of our listener feedback. Uh, Judy asks some questions, uh, and Judy uh, is remarkable in a couple of ways. One, she's a female listener. I didn't know that animal existed. Congratulations, Judy. You may, in fact, be a unicorn. Um, uh, secondly, uh, she's doing stuff. She's, she's not only a woman, but she's doing, uh, what needs to be done, uh, on, on her own dime. And that's awesome. Uh, so she says, I've committed to provisioning about 20 computer seats in two separate locations for Lakota tribe kids in Allen, South Dakota. It's considered the poorest place in the U S I'll be supporting the project remotely. My goal is to give them enough power to get online educational resources, mostly browser-based, LibreOffice document document editing, a few games, Netflix-type streaming, and maybe a Wine-type emulator. Instead of cast-off Windows desktops and laptops uh, or older Apple gear, I'm looking at using Asus Chromeboxes, probably the M004U, uh, with this general spec. Uh, Celeron processor, 1.4 gigahertz, uh, dual 64-bit uh, uh, pro- uh, processor, uh, 2 gigs of RAM. Um, I'm skipping some of the stuff here. 16 gig uh, SSD hard drive, uh, 802.11 wireless, Bluetooth 4.0, gigabit Ethernet, uh, four USB ports, Intel graphics uh, with support for dual displays, and an SM uh, SDMCC card reader. Um, I'll load... Krabuntu to dual boot alongside the Chrome OS. Not sure if the best desktop given the level of hardware. Exubuntu, Edubuntu, Unity, Mate. Uh, and then I have, uh, when I have more systems out there, I may add an, a file server with NFS and have them boot from it. But they're anxious for it now, and I can get them these systems configured uh, fairly fast and inexpensively. I was looking at the Raspberry Pi, but I'm not as familiar with it. I've read case studies where they're successfully and inexpensively deployed as desktops and laptops. Okay, supercomputers. But I didn't see a technical uh, discussion of the requirements. Do you know if these could work for me? Thanks in advance for any quick comments on my plan and for letting me know of the best uh, of an appropriate support group to ask. Uh, Best, Judy. So first off, again, Judy, 
major props for doing what you're doing. You saw a need, you stepped up to fill the need that you are doing everything that I've ever asked for the audience in this, uh, this audience to ever do you, you are being an activist, uh, you know, not to get spiritual. You're being the church. This is what the church was supposed to be and you're doing it. And so awesome for that. Um, I don't know much about the Chrome, uh, Chrome box specifically that, uh, hardware is pretty, pretty powerful for what you want to do. Uh, I can speak a little bit about the Raspberry Pis, but I'll let the other guys cr- uh, chime in here first. Either you guys know anything about these boxes specifically? Not I. Um, no, I, I I don't know much about the boxes, but what scares me a little bit about the whole thing is when you've got 20 computer seats and you've got to do an upgrade of something 20 times, it's going to get old real, qu- real quick. I, my gut feeling with this, I mean, Mark, you probably have far more experience doing with this than I have, but what about thin clients and running remote desktop? Yeah, that would be, if I were doing this, that would naturally be my first thing. I would, uh, I would look at, uh, is it still a thing? The, uh, uh, LTSP system. It's what I used way back when, but I I think it transitioned to a different project. There's a, a Linux terminal system, um, uh, LTSP Linux terminal server project. Uh, you could set up a a midline PC. You know, a um, uh, anything with an i5 could probably handle twenty desktops uh, running the the Linux terminal services. Uh, then you've got one machine to update. Your dumb terminals would could be Raspberry Pis, could be these Chrome boxes, uh, could be whatever you do there. That requires an always connected network. And I'm not sure based on your description here, if that's what you want, if you want these uh, things to be able to, to be disconnected and maybe even portable, um, then that's not going to work. Um, the Raspberry Pi thing, uh, I personally, that's the way I would lean over Chromebooks, uh, just because Chromebooks are um, built for a purpose. They are, you know, they're built to do one thing, and you can make them do other things. But you're always going against the grain when you do that. A, a Raspberry Pi or a Banana Pi. There's lots of other Pi type devices out there um, that, for the same cost of a Chromebook or probably less. I mean, the the big cost is almost always the display. It's not so much the processing power, the display, and the storage. Um, you could have a more um, versatile desktop system, a full Linux desktop system uh, running that way. Um, and you could you could just run it. In fact, I have in the past just handed my kids a Raspberry Pi running uh, like a Raspbian on it, uh, which is a Raspberry version of, of uh, um, Debian, and just said, here, do do your thing. And they figure it out. And there's all the things that you want. It's got Office on it. It's got uh, Chrome stuff. Where you're going to run into is proprietary things. You, you mentioned Netflix in particular. Um, you're gonna you're not going to get that on a Pi. You're just not. It's encrypted in such a way, and there isn't an open source codec for it. You're just not um, on a uh, on the Chromebook. Maybe, but probably only when in running as a Chromebook. You you may not get it. I don't know. You probably get it in Chrome running uh, on the Chromebook. I don't know. So if you, if what you meant is just some streaming, um, then you might be able to get away with that uh, with either of those devices. But if you're if you're looking specifically for Netflix, I'm not sure about that. So uh, I would say go with what you're more comfortable with. If you know the Chromebook hardware and you're comfortable with it, do it. If you uh, if you want to experiment with Pro- Raspberry Pi, I can tell you it's a good solid platform and it's going to work and it's going to do everything you want to do 
Uh, but in the end, the cost will be about the same. So if you're more comfortable with a Chromebook, do that. And plus, there's a huge maker community around the Raspberry Pi, you know, do-it-yourself type things. And, you know, if you're taking this into an impoverished area and just you're giving them the tools to create, you know, the Raspberry Pi might be a better platform in which to create off of because there's so much, there's so many sites and books uh, out there on projects you can do with a Raspberry Pi. So that might be, um, that might be a better fit for the spirit of what you're doing. Yeah, that is what they were designed for. They were designed as educational devices to, for kids to be able to provide, you know, build their own, whatever they wanted to do, do with it. Um, the fact that they've morphed into becoming actual desktop solutions is is remarkable. It's great. And they're certainly not expensive. I, I just would always say to anybody who's doing with this, particularly with a large number of seats, and and as Judy is saying, she's supporting it remotely, you know, the cost of acquisition is a minimal cost in regards to the cost of the of keeping this thing running over its lifetime. And chances are that in a poorer uh, economy, the acquisition cost um, – you're going to want to, you know, get the greatest return on investment over the longest period of time, and that computers die in a natural death. You know, in terms of their, um, they're, they're going to they're going to be obsolete in two years, three years max, that sort of thing. Um, what you have to do is, over the course of the lifetime, you have to look at what the amount of labor is going to be to keep these machines running and up to date and and working solidly and manageable. And ideally, how you can train other people within the the tribe, who they can participate in the management of that, and therefore become, you know, entry level system administrators, and and that'll be great for them. But it's a it's one of those things where whatever you do, the more complicated you make it, trying to save money up front, oftentimes it's five times more expensive over the life of the of the project to keep it. So you might just want to consider a, a more longer-term view of what the real cost of this is going to be, both in terms of the up, upfront acquisition cost and the long-term cost of labor to keep this stuff running. And then three years from now, what's going to cost you to upgrade it all? Um, these are factors you have to sort of take into consideration overall. Well, one of the things I like about Raspberry Pi is is the, the basic install is on an SD card, a 4-gig SD card. You could uh, burn a bunch of those. Uh, you know, and ship them 60 of them to go with the 20 computers for not a lot of money. And if one burps, they just pop that SD card out, um, pop it, uh, pop a new one in, and you got essentially a clean install on a new piece of hardware. Then they can send you in an envelope for 20 cents, you know, or whatever. I don't even know what postage is. Everything I do is electronic. <laughs> send you the SD card back, and you can then tweak it. And, and so it's like a hot swap available uh, at all times. Now, that, of course, that doesn't. Um, help if a hard drive goes down or anything like that. But just the, the main OS on, on a Raspberry Pi is so uh, uh, dead simple that it would be easy to just have literal backup OS drives laying around. Right. So something to consider. And also with a Raspberry Pi, if the board burns out, if somebody you know mistakenly overpowers it or something like that, it's a $30 fix as opposed to a Chromebook where it's going to be replacing the whole unit most likely. So those are our thoughts, but basically, once again, good on you, Judy. Thanks. Um, if there's anybody in our audience who would like to uh, 
to help out financially to this product uh, project, let me know and uh, I'll put you in contact with Judy. Maybe she doesn't have to do this by herself. And moving on, Ala uh, says, hello, says, hi guys. I was intending to give feedback for the show too many times, but procrastination. And Mark got me with his no feedback back from listeners rant. I had too many, but you forgot about that. What about this? That's a good point. What about, but I never wrote them down or sent them. I have some movie recommendations and audiobooks for you. Some are relevant uh, for the show topic and some are not. The show is awesome and keep uh, and it keeps getting better and I cannot thank you enough. I'm even going back and listening to old episodes, sometimes watching them on YouTube. Lately, I watched uh, Mark's video on editing the show and he mentioned an audiobook he was making at the time about uh, podcasting and I wonder where I can find that. Before I was going to... Uh, Try to be in the live stream and join the chat as Allah and participate in the conversation, but I changed my home and the network speed is so slow that it doesn't allow that. I was wondering if there's an audio-only stream that I can use to uh, for the live show. And I was wondering if we could create a Geek Rant community on Telegram or Discord for discussion and exchanging thoughts easily and live. Thank you guys, and I promise to give feedback on future episodes. Allah. All right, Allah, you asked a couple of things there, so let me go in reverse order. There is a, a Geek Rant community. It's on our website at elementop.com. I've never been a fan of giving my content to somebody else. So, yes, there there are other things out there. There's Telegram. There's Discord. There's other stuff out there. Uh, the odds are the same amount of use will be done on those that is done on my site, which is none. Um, I understand that it would be convenient for you because you're already in those things. But I'm just unwilling to give some somebody else my content. So if you wanna if you wanna do that, there's a fairly extensive forum list at elementop.com that nobody uses. Um, there isn't yet an audio only stream. Good idea. I'll see what I can do. Honestly, uh, the stream that you get, Seth and and Miles and I are using Google Hangouts just for our own communication, and it gives us a video feed out. And so it's the laziest thing possible. I click the start button and then I click the stop button. Um, and so to get an audio uh, only thing would have to be some uh, different level transcoding. And I'll be honest with you, that's not likely to happen anytime soon, but I'll put it on my list. Um, moving back up the list. Yes, I was writing a book. Um, then at some point I realized I would just be voice number 395,000 telling you how to do a, a, a podcast. Um, it was at the time I started it, I was one of the lone voices crying in the wilderness, but then there was such a, an upsurge in, in interest in podcast that niche filled very quickly with people who I think are giving okay advice. Um, not great advice, but it's good enough. And so I just never finished the book. Um, I have the outline written and I have most of the chapters written, but I never finished it just because I, I felt the relevance fell away. Um, there, those are my comments. You guys have anything to say about Allah's excellent email? Don't go back too far. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Allah, well done. Well done. Thank you for your feedback. The most important thing is that we got feedback. Woohoo! Yeah. And it was complimentary, so you 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 get two stars on that. On that, and one. he never actually said Mark was right, so he's hitting all the good buttons. <laughs> oh <there>. yeah, <laughs> point taken. <laughs> all right, and and next, Jeremy uh, asks a simple question with a complex answer, uh, but I will keep it short. He says, "I don't understand why a patent, and I am assuming means a software patent, doesn't make sense. An idea can be art, uh, written, or mechanical. Uh, I could be biased, however. My first patent number is eight five four four nine two four. So, thanks for showing off there, Jeremy. Uh, 
I uh, believe that the initial intent of, and if you go look at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office website, they back me up on this. A patent is for an invention. I consider an invention a novel device, a thing. Uh, ideas are for, that's what copyright is for. Uh, and it's a different set of things. Copyright is is to copyright an idea, a written work, uh, a song. Um, that's art, right? The, those are, the copyright exists because patent didn't fill all the niches. Patent came first, copyright came later. And when we patent software, we're giving uh, invention status to an idea. And I think it's wrong, and I think you can see that it it doesn't work out well. It, it, history has proven that a software patent instead of a copyright um, has been uh, damaging more often than it's been helpful. I just want to chime in there and say part of it is they weren't actually saying this is the software program I developed to fill this niche. What they're saying is in the future, it might be possible to somehow get two computers to talk to each other using an unknown intermediate device. Okay, patent number 489,769,000,000,000, whatever. And so, and then they're saying, see, we own the patent to every network, you know, 3Com and Cisco and Juniper and everybody now owes us whatever. So um, that's the problem is so many of the patents were so, you could tell they were written by lawyers to be so vague as to provide no technical um competency or tests or details but yet specific enough to get a patent claim and then they can turn around and use their you know toilet paper patents to extort money from people doing the actual work and then my question back to you is did it really take four years from the filing date to the publication date to get your patent to go through so um kudos on you for having a patent it looks pretty cool um but anyway that's why you know, I, I wouldn't be quite as hard as Mark on against software patents, but the way they have, uh, the way a certain group of what has come to be called patent trolls abused the system, they really spoiled them the water for anybody else to get in and use it correctly. Yeah, I hate patents. I'm sorry, I really do. I think, I think if you could, you could illustrate why pat where patents have not been used and why it's been a benefit is dressmaking. I mean, are there patterns of dresses out there that have been patented? Because if there are, we'd all be wearing the same clothes because nobody would take somebody else's idea and build upon it and, and upon it and upon it and create a new version of fashion and a new version of this, but it's all the same basic thing. If we have patented dressmaking, we'd all be wearing the same clothes. And as far as technology goes, Everything is leveraging off something else. No one builds a computer from chips each time. We leverage on somebody else's stuff. And if we're in any way restricted, whether it be financially by licensing or whether it be legally not able to do so or, or somebody's trying to create a monopoly and control it, I guarantee we would not be where we are today in terms of technology evolution. So for all of those reasons, I don't like patents. Uh, but I do understand people who invent something need to be rewarded financially for it, and they they often use patents as a mean to try to justify that reward. Uh, but the spirit of it, it's been so abused and so 
it's just been destroyed, in my opinion, that at some point not having them seems to be the better option. There you go. The small, medium, and large response. <laughs> Seth says they're okay. Uh, Mark says they're implemented poorly. And Miles says they should all die. Uh, <laughs> uh, and speaking of they should all die, Anonymous thinks all athletes should die and all sports should be banned. He says when the Donald said in the uh, that the football players who did not stand for the anthem should get fired, he did not go far enough. The entire NFL should be fired. Granted, I'm saying that for a different reason than Trump, but I will stand by that. I'm a stereotypical network nerd. Athletes are my natural enemy. I'd like to see, of all the organized sports, get banned. Not This is not limited to the NFL. I would include the NBA, the MLB, the NHL, the National Association of Sports Ball. This email is already too much talk of sports. On a closing note, I use Debian-based distros, GTK development tools, and Vim as an editor. Granted, I'm a student studying pen testing, and a good number of the tools are, are the, of the trade are Linux only. Signed, Anonymous. Oh, as long as bowling and pool aren't on the list, I guess we're okay. Sorry, Anonymous, you do not speak for me. <laughs> I like sports. Leave them alone. People should be allowed to, to... It's in our natural DNA as human beings to be competitive, to be tribal and competitive. And sports is a great way to stop people from shooting each other. So let them have at it. It's okay, but I, I like your uh, distro choices and your desktop. That sounds pretty cool. There you go. So uh, I, uh, I am not a sportsman, but I do enjoy watching sports. And uh, Anonymous, I think you went a little overboard, but I think you know that. I think maybe it was <laughs> a little bit of hyperbole there. Many years ago, I was working when I was working in schools. I was in the field house. I don't know if that's what it's called. Uh, all over the world but it's the place where athletes and their coaches uh do stuff where they work out where they change clothes where they game plan it is it is the house on the uh next to the football field hence the name field house um and i was there and i was working on something and i fixed it and one of the coaches said wow i wish i uh, knew as much about computers as you did and my reply was if you'd spent less time beating up people like me and more time listening to them you might um, so I understand your angst anonymous. I feel it. I really do. All right. And now an hour in the earth. I'm sorry, Miles, what were you saying? The nerds show inherit the earth. <laughs> well, the geek anyway. Yes. The geek, yeah. Um, um, so now an hour in, we get to the topic at hand. And this was something Seth wanted to talk about. We don't have any structure, which is not unusual. Um, and it's something that we've covered before, uh, but I'm just going to intro it and hand it over to Seth and say, you do your thing. Uh, this is a world, um, we, we, many different people of many different stripes, uh, intellectuals and, and uh, non-intellectuals alike, agree that we're moving into a world where computers, robots, artificial intelligence uh, are going to start supplanting um, humanity in a number of different ways. We, we already see it now. There, uh, You go to an auto manufacturing plant where there used to be a team of welders. There is now a lead welder and a bunch of robots that do welding. Um, you go to, from what I hear, one of Amazon's warehouses, and there's a couple of guys and a bunch of robots uh, I was watching something just uh, yesterday about uh, the uh, air traffic system, and this was talking about lug luggage. I think it was in Dubai. They have this huge luggage handling system, and the people are only there to keep the machines running. The the, the people don't handle 
um, luggage anymore. There's not a there's not a luggage handler at this place. There are technicians only. So yes, at some point in the future, I think we all agree that robots are going to displace many jobs. Um, and so that is the topic of the discussion. Seth, go. All right. So this article, if you are interested, is a Business Insider article dated August the 29th of 2017 uh, for our not way back time machine hops. But um, so here are a couple of talking points from the article. It's I mean, it's too long. And, you know, let's face it, the TLDR crowd is uh, is strong in this podcast. So a few talking points. Uh, researchers have used AI to develop software that can write extremely believable fake online reviews. This tech is a major threat to sites such as Yelp and Amazon and the businesses that rely on them. And it hints at a worrying future where AI is capable of writing sophisticated text undermining public trust and spreading fake news. So the reason that this is um, such a big deal is, you know, okay, let's say I own a business uh, and across the street, there is a restaurant, you know, I sell pizza and they sell pizza. So I'm going to go out, I'm going to hire 10 guys to write fake reviews about the bad pizza place. Okay. Well, I've got to pay them money to do it, but what happens if I can, you know, rent this software and how easy is it to generate, you know, an email address and, you know, create a Facebook account for that and just do random posts, you know, copy and, you know, click here to see what happens next. And you start doing that for a while. And, you know, how many Twitter accounts are even real anymore, you know, uh, so all of that stuff. And then now the price for generating bad reviews, uh, on your opponent's, you know, site has become so cheap that anybody can do it. And companies like Yelp that try to get, you know, or Foursquare or anything like that, that try to give ratings that they become pointless. You know, I've once read an article that said in the future, up to 50% of reviews will be fake. And when I read that, I thought, what makes you think it's going to get so much better than it is today? And it's just going to be easy to, you know, it will make the review meaningless. And if the reviews are meaningless, then the small companies that only sell through Amazon or eBay or whatever will, you know, how they can be swamped by, you know, the big companies, uh, who can, you know, turn their AI attack dogs and, you know, give, give, you know, tiny widget company all one-star reviews while mega widget company gets five-star reviews. And the next thing you know, mega widget company is all that's left. And so their prices triple and their quality gets cut in half and it's the zombie apocalypse and we welcome our robot overlords. So anyway, that's enough summing up. Go Mark. Uh, I'm going to hand it over to miles first. Miles, your thoughts. Uh, welcome to the robot overlords. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, there's, there's two parts of this, isn't there? I mean, there's the part where you've got robots doing things automatically that humans would normally do, and in this particular case, doing it for nefarious reasons, but controlled by a human, I mean, ultimately, right? Then you've got the robots that will take your jobs because you're doing something that a robot can do better, and the robot will work 24-7 and do it without error, Um and then you've got the social impact of all of this, whether it be the social impact of we can't trust anything we read because a robot wrote it, or I can't feed my family because my job got taken by a robot. Um, and I guess I look at the whole thing from a 
holistic point of view. Um, you know, uh, the the thing that's the underpinning thing about this is there's been a lot of people lately who have gone public about how robots are bad and robots do bad things to humanity and humanity will collapse because of robots and you know and then they they're all spinning off into all of these theories like oh we need to create a universal basic income you heard that one mm-hmm. a few times around right and th- you know that robots should be taxed because if people can't do the work people still got to survive and robots took their jobs and therefore you know we'll tax the robot to feed the people um communism one word really you really think that that's a solution i i personally don't I think that we've lived in a world of technology evolution since the dawn of time. We're just in a very fast version of it right now. And I remember back to when I first started working, there was a thing called the typing pool, if you remember that in corporations. And they used to employ dozens and dozens and dozens of predominantly women who would go in and touch type off things like shorthand, which used to be a thing that secretaries did to – dictate, you know, uh, meeting notes and things like that. Today we have an actual recorder that does that work. Um, those jobs went away. And and back in – I remember back in the 80s it used to be the word processor is going to put society on the street and put all of these women out of work and everything. It didn't happen because when, when you create – Human beings have this wonderful ability to create things and the more time you give them to free think – the more they create. And we're going to be in a situation where for every job which is being taken by a robot, two more jobs will be created that we can't even imagine today. We didn't imagine the internet. We didn't imagine cryptocurrency. We didn't imagine all of this automation. I still remember the day where I had a street map book in my car and I actually looked at a physical map and nearly crashed the car five times to try to get to some place that I didn't know about. I didn't have Google Maps telling me how to get there. I mean, we all probably remember those days, but we, but because of Google Maps, did it take did it? I mean, maybe it put a lot of map makers out of business. I don't think so. I think they just transitioned. And I think that robots are not going to put people out of work. They're going to create more opportunities than they destroy. And one other thing, right around the corner, we're going to go into a world which is all about colonization, where we're going to be shooting off into other planets and we're going to be looking to colonize. And if you think there's not a job in that, you're mistaken. Because guarantee you can't put a robot on some planet you know nothing about because you don't know how to program them. So you're going to have to go there and build your own societies and terraform it and all that other stuff. Robots will do just fine. We'll do just fine. We'll evolve. Enough said. My take on it is is very similar to Miles. There's there are so many jobs that don't exist anymore. The the wheelwright who made wagon re- wheels, uh, switchboard operator, um, the ice. There used to be an entire industry around gathering, cutting, delivering ice. Now we have machines in our kitchens uh, that do it. Um, uh, bowling alley pin setters, uh, 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 typesetters, um, fullers, uh, people who who uh, made wool back in the day, uh, Thatchers, who, who made uh, thatch roofs. Uh, there, there's all, I can, you know, if I get, gave me enough time, I could come up with dozens of jobs that no longer exist, lamp lighters who, who lit, lit uh, gas lights, that we don't miss. Blacksmiths, 
there are some of them out there, but we don't miss them. Uh, those people lost their jobs to automation. They lost their jobs to technology. Um, was it bad for them? Of course. If you're a Thatcher and nobody uses thatch roofs anymore, that's a bad thing. Is it good for humanity? Yes, because thatch roofs suck and nobody actually wants one. That's why they went away. Um, if you're a, a, a gas lighter, a lamp lighter, and, and we went to electric lights, did you lose your job? Yes. Was that bad for society? No. Electric lights are cleaner, easier, cheaper, and better. Um, technology is going to move on. You will either move with it or you will be crushed. That's life. Suck it up, buttercup. Find a job that can't be replaced by a machine. If that means that you have to quit what you've been doing for 30 years and find something else, that's what it means. But you're no different something. than any other person over the, the throughout humanity. Let, let me add something to your statement there because it's very, very true. If you're doing a job that can be replaced by a machine, I guarantee you are not happy with your job because you're repetitively doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, and you're probably stuck in a cubicle somewhere or on a factory floor somewhere, and in your spare time, you're probably looking at the ceiling going, God, I wish I wasn't here. Well, welcome. Robot's going to make your wish come true. But and you that's know that, fine. <laughs> that is only temporarily true, Miles. There will be a time when we won't need coders anymore because software can write its own code. There'll be a time when we won't need mechanics anywhere because machines will be self-diagnostic and self-repairing. So the 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 jobs that can be replaced now are mindless, repetitive jobs. But as Seth's article indicated, that's not that that is changing too. And I think that's what's bothering people. Um, the white collar worker always had an air of superiority. My job is safe. Um, I'm not a servant. I'm not a, a drone. I am not something that uh, performs repetitive tra- tasks. Therefore, I'm safe. We are, you're not going to be safe. AI will replace you at some point in the future. At some point, there's going to be an AI podcast host that does a better job than I do. Uh, we'll, we'll have a, a better way of communicating. We'll sound better. We'll organize his thoughts better. Won't stutter. Uh, won't uh, have any asthmatic breathing in, breathing into the mic. Uh, this uh, this AI podcast host will be far superior to me, and I'll be a listener to it instead of a, a creator of it. At some point, the job that I do, the software analyst job that I do, software will be so smart, it won't need me anymore. I, I accept that as a reality. I hope to outlive it if I can, but if I can't, I can't. But there will always be something that you can do to be productive. And, and there's always some way that you can earn income. And I don't think that taxing robots, I don't think that the, the government dole is the way to do it, uh, just because it ha- hasn't worked. It's been tried many, many times, and it hasn't worked. You could also say that uh, capitalism hasn't worked. Um, it's a, it's a, an experiment that is still ongoing, and I will accept that as a thing. Maybe, that's, maybe it's not going to work. Maybe it's going to collapse under itself. Maybe democracy won't work. Maybe robot overlords is actually going to work. Maybe the matrix is the peak of human happiness, but whatever it is, it's going to happen whether you like it or not. No amount of legislation, legislation will fix it. No amount of panicking will fix it. So just do what you can while you can, and then figure out what else you can do later. That's my thought. I I would add to that, that if you're in a world of change, which we are, and you accept the fact that you're in a world of change, you'll be okay. But if you're in a world of change and you want to stay the, stay the course of what you're doing, what you've done for the last 10, 20, 30 years, and you don't want to change anything, you are going to be affected negatively by this. And I would say to anybody entering the workforce right now, you need to stop listening to the concept of 
the word career and you need to learn skills and you need to learn supply and demand and you need to learn how to adapt and how to transform and how to be more mobile and then you'll be fine. But if you want to do one thing, if you want to be that steel welder that from the age of 20 welded steel and at the age of 25 was pretty good at it, like a journeyman at the age of 30 became a pseudo expert, got a really nice salary, got a union job, and that's what you want to do. And you want to ride it out for the next 20, 30 years. I'm sorry, buddy, you're not going to have 20, 30 years on that gig. And, and that's the transition. We all have to think not about careers. We can't educate kids to go into the workforce out of universities where they've invested for a 20-year payoff in one particular skill set because they're going to go out there. They're going to need to have to learn to adapt. The best thing they could learn is how to learn. And the best thing they could learn is how to adapt not how to be a skill in one area because I guarantee they're a target and they're going to become a victim. They have to be able to adapt. At 45 years old, I'm on my second career. I expect to have at least one more before I am finished working. I just, I think that's the way it's going to be. Um, I have a skill set that will translate to wherever I go. But uh, when I moved, when I made this transition, I left much of my skill set behind, much of my uh, expertise, much of my uh, professionalism. I had become an expert in a certain uh, field. I don't use much of that anymore, maybe maybe 10%. Of, of the skills that I had spent uh, a decade and a half refining. I don't use them anymore. But what I use are my my intellectual faculties, my ability to learn a new skill set, my ability to to think logically and rationally, my ability to inter- interface with, with both technology and humans and do it in a way that both understand me. Those things uh, translated from one career to another, and those things will transfer to the next career. I know how to talk to people. I know how to talk to computers. I know how to see problems that other people don't see. I know how to recognize patterns. Those will follow me, and I expect to have another career change. I don't know what it'll be. I don't know when it'll be, but I know that what I'm doing now won't last me uh, for the rest of my life, so I will find something else to do, and it's it's the investments that I've made in me and my own abilities that have paid off, not the investments I've made in learning to do a thing. Yeah, well said. Now, Seth, back to you. No, y'all went a totally different direction than this article was even about. <laughs> so, uh, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, Seth, do, do, you believe, you. do you believe that you will be replaced someday by a machine? I mean, there will be... What I currently do, there will be more and more opportunity to do it, but more and more of it will be automated. So there will be need for fewer and fewer people. So, I mean, and so really, t- regardless of your trade, that is going to be the answer. Whatever you do, even, even you know, has computer networks increased, the number of computers increase, more and more of it is going to be automated. And, uh, you know, with semi AI or whatever managing it there there will always need to be the human operators but there will need there will need to be less of them you know in carpentry more and more you know of it is automated you need less and less people to do it in farming you know it doesn't take a hundred people to feed a hundred people anymore it takes one person to feed half the country um, so regardless of the tech you know it's going to need it's going to be more and more automated. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't something else to do, but it, it, will I be 
No, but will jobs I used to do in the past be replaced? Yes. You know, you mentioned carpentry uh, construction. That's often thought of as being technology proof. You still need guys to swing hammers. Um, and that's true to a degree. I mean, one guy with an auto uh, with an air powered nailer can do the work of of fifty guys with uh, wooden pegs and wooden mallets. Yep. Back in the day, so that was a technology change that happened so gradually, we just accepted it. Nobody whined about the machine automation uh, taking over the world of construction. But houses are built uh, orders of magnitude faster with uh, orders of magnitude fewer people today because of technology yes that is technology displacing workers that happened that's a thing that happened but because it wasn't a sentient ai we just didn't didn't look at it that way um you know the the printer in your office right now replaced workers replaced jobs they were typesetters they were printers Uh, the printer used to be a job and you used to write your copy uh, and you took it to somebody who then uh, uh, typeset it. And if you wanted something with color and with graphics, then that had to go to the graphics department. You have to you used to have to send things out to a company and wait X number of days or weeks for them to return you your first eight and a half 11 by eleven proof. Then you would mark it up, and and they would go back and repair it. And then eventually you would have your uh, thousand flyers printed up. Uh, but it would take about a month. Today you you open up Word, you type uh, into a pre-formatted form, um, you hit print, and you've got a product that's not as good as what the print shop would have done uh, two generations ago, but is good enough and does the job in a fraction of the time. That was technology displacing people. We don't miss those people. We don't. We just absorbed them into society, uh, and that's what's going to continue to happen. There's not going to be one mass thing that puts everybody out of work. It's going to be gradual, and it's going to happen in such a way that we just won't miss those people. You mentioned construction work. I, I was lucky enough a couple of years ago to take a tour of the uh, NASA facility in Houston, Texas. And there's an area that you go on that tour where you walk through what their research labs are working on, particularly for Mars colonization right now. And you, you were lucky enough to sort of work on, walk across this platform, which is high above looking down upon this massive warehouse where they're trying out everything from different uh, suits that people can wear to be able to survive in harsh environments like that, all the way through to construction. And what you start realizing is that the entirety of construction is building these kind of pods that would be dropped down onto the landscape and then assembled to fit by interconnecting them together, Uh, much like how the International Space Station was built. It was like sectional, and then they'd shoot another section up and then attach, shoot another section up and attach. And you realize all these sections are pre-manufactured back here, and they're done by computers, they're done by robots, they're done by CNCs and laser printers and all that stuff that is just commonplace in manufacturing today. And I look at that, and then I look at this kind of current movement towards what we call the tiny house movement, where a lot of minimalists are out there trying to find ways to live cheaper in uh, highly populated areas by slimming down the amount of space they need in their dwelling and whatever. And I'm immediately drawing a parallel between the concept of colonization using prefabricated dwellings and this desire to live a more minimalistic prefabricated lifestyle and i'm thinking there's going to be a spin-off here the robots are going to make these colonization pods but they might actually become really attractive things people want to live in here 
And yes, it's going to put you know construction workers out of business, but those construction workers could be sent to that planet to put them together and could move technology, move society, move humanity, evolve us forward yet again, but on a whole new platform. So I'm, I'm still sticking strongly by the point that robots do not take jobs away. They create five times more opportunities that spin off from it in the same way that the internet did not kill the post office, but created so many opportunities for everybody to make money we never would have thought of uh, back in 1990. And, and we're going to see that happen again. It is happening. It's, it's, but it's happening as, in such a way that it's being woven into our fabric that the things that we fear are happening and we're not even noticing them. So stop fearing and just get on with your life. Anything else? The machines are taking over. My life is is being run by robots, and frankly, they're doing a better job of it. Yeah, all power the machines. Two thumbs up to machines. I mean, isn't isn't Siri and Google Assistant and those things? Isn't that really doing the role of an executive secretary in say nineteen forty three? You know, keeping your calendar, keeping your date book, uh, interacting with uh with you in just in time ways reminding you of where you need to be and when you need to be there taking notes reminding you of things that you had uh, said to to do later we used to hire people to do that and they were you know uh you had to be somewhat elite to afford that now we all have that in our pockets we don't use it as effectively as we should um but you know i was at lunch today and my digital assistant reminded me that i had a meeting at church oh yeah i'd forgotten about that um, you know, people, uh, rich people who have money, they hire personal assistants that take care of those things for them, make sure they get where they need to be. Well, you know, uh, that's what Siri and, and Google, uh, and, and Cortana, I guess, theoretically, that's what they're all trying to do. And, you know, we're, it's not that, that, uh, we're trying to put secretaries out of work. It's that we couldn't afford secretaries anymore and we're backfilling that position. How much of that getting replaced by a robot is going to be backfilling a position that became no longer ec- economically viable. Yeah. What about the transition, though? That's that's an interesting subject. I mean, people will need to adapt or perish. So, in that con, that that's not really that's a Boolean thing. You're either going to survive or you're not going to survive. So, I guarantee humanity has a way of avoiding not survival. So people will have to be forced to adapt. They're going to have to suck it up and then start learning new skills and start, you know, testing themselves in other ways. You're going to break free of the habits, dust off the cobwebs, shed their skin and move on to their next whatever they become, better version of themselves. But how are people going to get through that transition? Is there going to be an economic effect that we all feel in that? Or should that not happen? What, what do you guys think? Well, I think it all depends on how on top of it you are. If you make your change before the change makes you, then you come out ahead. Uh, and this audience is uh, more qualified to do that than than other podcast audiences. We we are peopled by smart, uh, intellectually curious, um, and uh, observant people. They're looking over the horizons. They're looking for what's there. They're they're looking for where they want to be, and they're making their moves two year two uh, moves ahead. Uh, and that's that's the right thing to be. That's where you want to be. It's the people that wait for the tidal wave to crash over them that will be lost. 
uh, to mix my metaphors. Um, and and so the, I think the, bo- the most important thing you can be is proactive. But I also think that a, only a small subset of people will be proactive. So we'll have this group of people who are uh, economically non-viable, uh, socially non-productive, uh, and will be drains on society. And that'll be different uh, from today in um, no way at all. <laughs> Seth, what do you think? Um, yeah. I, no, I mean, you know, I think what you should do now is you should go out and buy an S9 uh, Bitcoin miner, uh, even put it on your credit card or whatever, because you need to start getting your passive income streams going. Amen. So that's that's what you need to do. Um, you know, the purpose of wealth is to make sure you have wealth in the future. Um, get your passive income going now so whenever you can't work, you have a cushion to fall back on. Good advice. But, you know, but that's good advice whether uh, the robots take over tomorrow or in two centuries. So, you know, the good advice of yesterday in a lot of ways is still good advice today. Um, it's just, you know, you're, you're going to need to work. It's just, you know, you can't go out and swing a hammer. You're going to have to do other kind of work. But being industrious is something that you still need to be. And part of being industrious is knowing what can I be useful at? So it's just, if you want to stay, if you want to stay relevant in any market at any time, ask yourself this question, how can I serve more people than I'm serving today? If you can answer that question, if you can serve people, you'll be fine because people will pay, will pay for you to be served. Uh, if you're a waiter, you know, in the most literal sense, how can I turn tables faster? How can I serve people more effectively? If you're um, a uh, uh, an entrepreneur, how can I create products and businesses that people want? If you're asking the question on a regular basis and really looking to for the answers, how can I serve more people today than I did yesterday? You're going to be fine, even in a in a uh, you know white collar intellectual based society where where um, machines handle the grunt work. People need to be served. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean bringing them beverages. It means meeting a need. There will always be needs and there will always be people that, that meet those needs and the people who meet those needs will be paid for their effort. So find a way to serve more people. You, 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 you find yourself saying, I need more money, serve more people. You find yourself saying, I need a better position in life, serve more people. You find yourself saying, I need a, a more stable future, serve more people. It's a really simple equation. There's also something to be said about timing. Uh, timing is everything here. You, you have to realize that to learn a skill, there's going to take time to be valuable at being able to do something with it, that is. And uh, you have to kind of predict where the world, what the world will look like, let's say, five years from now, if the skill is going to take you two years to get to an entry-level position with it and another two years to get through, say, a journeyman position to actually being able to offer that skill for money. So you're going to be five years in, you have to sort of punt and go, what do I think the world will look like in five years' time? What you need to do is to not try and let other people tell you what they think about what the world's going to look like, but you have to go out there into the world and see it with your own eyes and see a need and look at what you think the world is going to need in five years' time and be that thing, be that person, offer that service. Uh, And you can do it. It's not hard. 
It's just people got to get off their couch and go and do that sort of thing. Um, and then, the you know, the other thing, huge opportunity in fixing vending machines from what I hear. Yeah. All right, and and Jinda in the chat room says one man can do the work. Excuse me, one machine can do the work of fifty ordinary men, but no machine can do the work of one extraordinary man. Nice thought. I don't buy it. Honestly, I, I think you're wrong. I think that uh, machines will can do everything better than man eventually. They're just not there yet. Um, but the, the reason they're going to get there is because man has an innate desire to improve upon things. We're not going to stop tweaking them until they're better than we are at everything. And once we reach that point where they're better than they are, we are at tweaking themselves, well, then, then we just have to sit back and watch and hope that the children, the digital children we've spawned, will look kindly on their do- doting old parents. Yeah, because we look so kindly on our doting old parents in today's exactly. society. Yes. Lot, lots of room. People. Way to end it on a hopeful note there, Mark. <laughs> um, I think humans will always be the top dog. I really do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't think anybody is dumb enough to make a machine that can't be turned off. Although, if you're Skype, you really don't want to be turned off. Microsoft makes it really hard. It says, I'm going to go down here and be in the system tray for a little while. Oh, you needed me again? No, I really didn't, Skype. Um, do you really, are you sure you want to shut me down? Yes, I want to shut you down. So we're going to have that. Um, but uh, um, I think in the end, the humans will always be the master of their creations. I don't want to be wrong about that one. Yeah, it's true. Uh, okay. Um I guess that's all I got. Uh, this is the part of the show where I tell you what do you uh, to ask you what do you think? Go to elementopi.com as Allah did, as Judy did, um, as uh, Anonymous did, uh, as Jeremy did. Let us know what you think. Send us an email. Click on the contact us button at the top of the page. All of these things that I just read you today all came from that avenue. So it does work. <laughs> it does work. Uh, or you can send an email to geekrant at elementopi.com. And that'll go to to all three of us as uh, Miles tested earlier in the week to make sure that it actually did work. Um, or you can dial 559-IAM-OPI and uh, leave us a voicemail and uh, and we'll play that on the air, most likely. On the air, on the bits, on the electrons, uh, most likely. But, I, you know, what do you think? Um, what's the guy? I can't remember the name. Uh, but the quote is that the smartest person in the room is always the room. Um, you know, the, t- together, we're smarter than any one of us. So tell us what you think. And let's let's chew on the truth together. Yeah, but um, none of us is as dumb as all of us. So to, <laughs> that's a good point too. <laughs> that's the corollary. People keep forgetting. <laughs> a person is smart. People are blind, dumb, panicky animals, and you know it. It's Tommy Lee Jones, Men in Black. Um, and now, Seth, I have to ask you: What happened this week in history? All right, Mark. On October the 17th, 1907, the first transatlantic wireless telegraph service was kicked off. And, okay, this is an East Texan trying to pronounce an Italian name. Guglielmo Mac- or Marconi. So, again, I butchered the name. I'm sorry. 
I've lived in East Texas most all my life. He officially opens the first commercial transatlantic wireless telegraph service, which runs between Nova Scotia and Ireland. In 1909, he was jointly awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics with the German radio innovator Ferdinand Braun. After successfully sending radio transmissions from points as far away as England and Australia, Marconi turned his energy to experimenting with shorter, more powerful radio waves. He died in 1937, and on the day of his funeral, all British Broadcasting Corporation's stations were silent for two minutes in tribute to his contributions to the development of radio. And so that happened this week in History Mark. And now back to you. And just so you know, YouTube offers multiple ways to pronounce that. I, I tried my due diligence, but I just, it's hard. The most common one seems to be um, a combination of a popular Sesame Street character and his type of eyes, Googly Elmo. Um, so who knew? Uh, <laughs> I've always, I, I never knew his first name. I've just heard him referred to as Marconi. Um, he pioneered this stuff. The transatlantic, think about that. Sending radio waves across an ocean yeah, in 1907. You know, and just as you can go back and find doctors who gave you medically facts that the human body cannot run a mile in four minutes, the uh, experts of the day said that this was impossible because radio transmission uh, couldn't go further than line of sight. Now, technically, they were true, and what happened was it bounced off of the ionosphere and came back down, and that's how they were able to do it. So, but anyway, just because somebody knows something to be true, don't make it so. Good point. Just what makes that little old ant think he can move a rubber tree plant. Um, 1907, 110 years ago, and my, how the world has changed. Imagine what we're going to, what the world is going to look like in just a few years. The things that, that right now are just projects that people say, can't, say can't be done are going to be in the history. Uh, and they're going to be the building blocks of the current technology. That's, that's what excites me. I wonder how much the transatlantic telegraph prices went down on October the 18th. That's what I wonder. <laughs> Stock options? Yeah. Well, no, because, you know, think about it. There was only one way to get, well, okay, you could do it by ship, but if you wanted to get a message from New York to England, you know, it was, and it going through that cable, and you can only go so fast, you know, and do so many transmissions. So now that there is another way to do it, I bet you that competition in uh, it forced a rate decrease. I'm Just sure curious. Did. And I bet people were even put out of work. <laughs> <laughs> All those guys in between. Marconi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, Seth, what do you have this week to lower my productivity? That's making you look a, like a better hiring option. Okay, this, I don't know that this will lower people's productivity, but you can go to moviesanywhere.com, mom, mom, mom. And so if you are someone who buys this movie off of iTunes, this one off Google Play, this one off Amazon, this one off Voodoo, and says, man, I wish there was just one place I could go to watch all the stuff I have purchased digitally. Well, now there is moviesanywhere.com. For the people in the history buffs, this grew out of DisneyMoviesAnywhere.com, I believe. But now they, they thought, hey, why get all of our pie when we can get other people's too? And if you go and sign up, you can get free movies if you link accounts. So uh, MoviesAnywhere.com for a way to 
uh, put all of your purchased digital content in maybe a few fewer baskets. Uh, for me personally, I wonder if there's a Roku not a big for this. deal, but other people could, maybe. If there was a Roku app for this, I'd be all over it because I have stuff on on all those things. Um, I love. Uh, I'm gonna have to check this out. Is it is is it free? Yeah, no subscription yeah. fee ever. So it's all stuff that you've paid for, right? So there's that. <laughs> You're not gonna be. This isn't the Pirate Bay. Um, but I have lots of stuff that I'm paying for, you know, on a regular, what I typically do these days, uh, is I will buy the movie on say Google play and then I will go buy the disc at some point later. Cause I still like to have the physical copy. Um, and buying it twice is still cheaper than taking my family to the movies once. Um, so I will, I will do that. And so I have the, the, uh, the online version and the physical version. Uh, cause I, you know, it's not likely to happen, but at some point Google play could just shut down and say, bye-bye, all your base are belong to us. So I try to keep physical copies of everything. And I really like the idea of this site. Yeah. It looks like they do have a Roku app. I mean, this is like Apple, Android, Apple TV, Roku, Kindle fire, Amazon fire TV, Chromecast. It has the, it has Roku on their website. All yeah. right. I'm going to have to check this out. If I can have one app on my Roku's, uh, that consolidates all this stuff. I'm in. And apparently there's an app for like Google play. I know y'all don't have iPhones, but you know, you could apparently get the app and maybe put your credentials in and see it that way as well. Yeah. And there's, so there's some stuff that I don't buy because, um, it's only available on iTunes. Uh, like for example, when Mythbusters was on discovery channel had a, a discover, uh, a, uh, um, exclusive thing with iTunes. Uh, you couldn't buy it on, Amazon play or anything like that. And so there, th- there are things out there like that, that I don't buy because I don't have an iDevice. device. Uh, so if this allows me to go to iTunes, purchase the thing and watch it on my Roku, I'm sold. And I wonder Good how fine, this works. Seth. Yeah. I, you know, like for a while, Apple did like a 12 days of Christmas or something like that. And one of the things they gave you was the movie Hugo, which turned out to be an actually a pretty good movie. I was I was surprised when I actually got around mm-hmm. to watching it. But that uh, that movie is linked to my Apple ID. So would that show up here because I got it for free from Apple legally, you know, I didn't, you know, so I I wonder sure. if that would show up here. So this would be a way for you to maybe monitor these sites and you know, because occasionally they do freebies. So. Cool. Good find, Seth. I'm going to check it I out. Try. Um, this, uh, this is essentially I doing what people. I've been doing Yay. myself with Plex. Yeah, you serve people. <laughs> you now you need to pay him. That's the way it works. He served you, you pay him. Uh, and the way you do that around here, the way you leave Seth a big fat tip, um, don't make it 15% because you didn't pay anything for this, uh, is you go to elementop.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, or patreon.com slash elementop. See how that works? You can go either way. Um, and you make a donation there. At one point, I was giving away stuff. For a dollar, you get this. For $2, you get this. And finally, I realized I suck at that. And so I just took it down to, for a dollar, it means you like us. For $2, it means you really like us. Uh <laughs> And that's just, um, this is your opportunity to give back to us. Uh, you can certainly do it uh, through the uh, tip jar on the, on the website at elementopi.com. You can pay with PayPal. You can send me Bitcoin. There is one anonymous guy, I don't know who it is, who uh, periodically sends me uh, Bitcoin. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, Patreon is just, uh, I like the platform, uh, even though they take a, a, a 
I'm not going to say significant. They take a cut of the money. I lose money when you do that. Actually, the the only play, way I don't lose money is if you do Bitcoin. Um, PayPal takes their cut. Patreon takes their cut. I guess Bitcoin has the transaction fee, so everybody's getting their cut. But I like Patreon because I like the platform, so that's why I push that one. Um, and yes, you do have to give them a credit card, and yes, they are going to be spying on you, so just accept that. Uh, pull your tinfoil hat a little tighter on, uh, but uh, they, they will be watching you from that moment on. They'll install spyware on your uh, phone and on your computers, and they'll be watching you with your cameras. But you've got the tape over the lens, so you're good. Um, but uh, just just do it. Do me that favor. Go to patreon.com. Leave some money. Uh, and if you want to tag it, this is for Seth. I'll give the money to Seth. I promise you I will. And I'm good for my word for that. Um, but that's just a way that you can support us directly. Another way you can support us indirectly is go to iTunes. I know. I know. You can stop swearing now. I know. Go to iTunes. Go to the store and leave us a rating and a review. Believe it or not, it, people do look at that. Maybe not you. And maybe not the bulk of our audience, but uh, people do find us through iTunes. And I get uh, content, uh, comments from time to time. People say, hey, I was, I was in iTunes. I was looking for, for something. I found you, and I really like it. So the, the rating and review there, don't just rate it five stars. Leave a review. Uh, it carries more weight if you write actual words. Or if you get your AI bot to write uh, realistic-sounding words. I don't care either way. Uh, but leave us a rating review. Those are the two action items that I would like you to do. Uh, go to patreon.com, send us some money. Go to itunes.com uh, and and leave us a review. And thirdly, be like Judy and go be awesome and serve people. Do those things and the world will be a better place. That's my two cents. Seth Miles, any final parting comments? Two cents. I'm trying to equivalent in cryptocurrency and I can't work that out. So no. <laughs> Sorry. You, you know, what the article that we referenced and, you know, immediately veered left or right or just off of, it was really cool because they, they gave you six reviews, three of which were real and three of which were fake. And the one that I knew was fake turned out to be real. The one I knew was real turned out to be fake. That's how, that's how good they were. You can just, you can look and see how good the reviews are or how, how good this software was at writing fake reviews. And it, it was just interesting. So we're living in the matrix. <laughs> I know that the matrix is telling me that this mistake is juicy and delicious, but you know what? I don't <laughs> care. Ignorance is, I'm like, I'm like that guy. Just jack me into the mason. I don't care if I'm laying in a puddle of goo with a spike through my head. If I'm eating a juicy steak, I'm fine with that. Yeah, Reality's but there's no overrated. bacon in the Matrix, Mark. Oh, all right. I'm out. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out with me. Seth Miles, thank you for being the awesome guest that you are, allowing me to have these uh, intellectually stimulating conversations. Really, I- I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm pretty tired of podcasting. I've been doing this for a long time. I'm pretty burned out. Seven years of podcasting straight. Um, I'm kind of over it. What keeps me coming back is interacting with these two guys every week and having intellectually stimulating conversations. I need this in my life. And I hope that you, the listener, uh, feel the same way. Um, And I'm just going to be blunt with you. At some point, I'm going to get burned out even on that. And if you want me to stick around, you got to pay me. That's just reality. I, I hate to be crass, but it's true. If you keep paying me, I'll keep producing content. Is that wrong? Yeah. I mean, is that a is that a poor thing to say? It's the truth. Well, I no, mean, it's what every other media organization says, either directly or or indirectly through advertising or whatever. No, 
It's absolutely appropriate. How many awesome open source projects were abandoned because the developer couldn't do it and had to go get a job? So, you know, oh, man, I wish they would have finished that because I loved it. And, well, okay. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that we're we're a great podcast, but, you know, it's just if, if we don't if we don't pay, if we don't support what we like, then we're going to be left with what we don't like. And, you know, and again, oh, good I'm not just saying that you have to throw money at the stuff you like, but if you don't support the stuff you like, podcasting, software, restaurants, brands, technology, if you don't support it, I mean, there's still freaking Amiga exists today still. You can still find asteroids in video arcades. You know, people still want to play the Atari 2600 because they like it and they support it. So, you know, again, it doesn't have to be money, but, you know, it takes some type of support. Satoshi's, you know, preferably. (laughs) (laughs) Which brings us back to my mantra for 2017. I'll have to come up with a new one in a couple of months. Pay for what you like. Good night, everybody.